I can remember uh, for two or three years, uh, my family ba uh, bounced back and forth from East Coast to West Coast and on and on and on. And every time I, I went, I found out that I was dressing the, the wrong clothes, not looking like the cool thing, and, and it was really hard, and I felt uh, rejected. You know, people looked at me kind of strange uh, because I didn't have uh, the clothes they had. They, I, didn't, I didn't have the activities they had, those kinds of things. Um, and I, there was just this, this sense of, of rejection and defeat. But also, I can remember um, that there was once in high school, I was, I was doing really great in an honors English class, um, in which I had done very well a previous year. And I came back to, uh, to that class, and I was told that I was no longer needed there. And so I, was, I felt rejected very much. Uh, I can remember playing uh, football uh, about, you know, 13 maybe, 14, somewhere in there. I was a quarterback on offense and a linebacker on defense. And I was doing really well. But when I moved up to a very large high school that had very larger guys on the team, <laughs> I wasn't first team anymore. I was rejected from first team. Rejection is never welcome, but it does happen, and we must deal with it. Very interestingly, though, the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, is very often rejected, but it is never defeated. The Apostle Paul was a dynamic servant of God, a missionary who was passionate about bringing the good news to those who had never heard of Jesus Christ. From the Bible in the book of Acts, we read of three missionary journeys that Paul initiated and completed very successfully, and he led many people to faith in Christ. Near the end of that third journey, he was looking forward to returning to the great city of Jerusalem. One reason for that was because he had asked uh, Christians in churches far away from Jerusalem to collect offerings, money, that would then be delivered to the very poor Christians living in Jerusalem. And it would strengthen the ties between the Jewish Christians and the Gentile Christians. But Paul was warned ahead of time as he was coming back, that prison and hardship awaited him in Jerusalem because his enemies were out to do him great harm. In the book of Romans, uh, chapter 15, we read of Paul's letter in which uh, he wrote, Pray that I may be kept safe from the unbelievers in Judea. By the word Judea, Paul meant uh, the region in which Jerusalem was situated, the center of Judaism, and by the word unbelievers, he meant those who rejected Jesus as the Messiah, the Son of God, and who were hostile toward Christianity. Even so, Paul did not turn back. He determined to go to Jerusalem, and that's exactly what he did. He came back to Jerusalem. The scriptures tell us that the next day after his arrival, Paul met with James, James the head of the church at Jerusalem, and then with all the elders of the church there. Acts 21.19 tells us that uh, Paul greeted them and reported in detail what God had done among the Gentiles in his ministry, and that many of them had come to faith in Christ. And when they heard this, they praised God. And also, Paul delivered a large offering that had been collected there for those poor Christians in Jerusalem. And when the leaders of the Jerusalem church learned about Paul's ministry, they just kept praising him and praising him and celebrating. And that was such good news. But even so, trouble was just around the corner. 
Paul was accused in Jerusalem of teaching the Jews to turn away from Moses, that is, from the early scriptures of the, of the Old Testament, and claims were made falsely that Paul was telling Jews to disregard their Jewish customs. For a short, a short time, nothing much was made of that, but then men from the province of Asia who were in Jerusalem for the Feast of Pentecost stirred up trouble. They were unbelieving Jews and were previously acquainted with Paul and they stirred up uh, the crowd and they instigated a riot and they seized Paul at the temple and began beating him savagely. Such a circumstance was not new to Paul. That was actually the sixth time that a crowd was incited because of Paul's ministry. It happened in the cities of Lystra, Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea. It wasn't Paul's fault. He was just doing what Jesus called him to do, telling the good news of Jesus Christ. Paul's enemies then falsely accused Paul of bringing Greeks into the temple area, which the Jews considered to be an act of defiling their holy place of worship. The Jews felt so strong about that that the Romans, who had all power in Jerusalem and beyond, had given permission to the Jews to execute any offender that, uh, that broke that law, even if he or she was a Roman citizen. Soon the, the whole city had heard what it was happening, and Paul was dragged from the temple. Thankfully, next to the temple was the fortress of Antonia, where at least 200 Roman troops were stationed. And those troops first rescued Paul, and then shortly after, arrested Paul and bound him in chains. But after discovering that Paul was not an insurrectionist, but that he was a Jew with rights to be in the temple and that he was also a citizen of Tarsus, that means he was uh, connected to, uh, to uh, um, uh, where it was, Saul of Tarsus, right? Yeah, that's, uh, that's not the not the Jews. That's, uh, so he was there. Anyway, a commander granted, uh, granted Paul permission to speak to the crowd. And he told of his past commitment to stamp out Christianity and about the events of his conversion to Christianity. He also oh, spoke about um, uh, of the events of his conversion uh, uh, to, to Christianity. He spoke about his radically supernatural transformation that could have changed him. As well, he told that Christ had called him to specifically preach to Gentiles and Jews. And at that point, the Jewish crowd just became infuriated. They declared their, their rejection uh, of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Acts 22, 22 tells us, they raised their voices and shouted, rid the earth of him, Paul. Rid, uh, rid the earth of him. He's not fit to, to live. The Roman commander was baffled. He ordered that Paul be taken to the barracks to be flogged and interrogated in order to find out why the people were shouting at Paul <clears throat> in such a way. <clears throat> but then, <clears throat> verse 25 tells us, as they stretched out Paul to flog him, Paul pulled out his ace card, so to speak. He said to the, the uh, centurion standing there, is it le legal for you to flog a Roman citizen who hasn't been found guilty? Well, actually, it was definitely not legal to flog a Roman citizen in that way and in those circumstances, so activity all stopped immediately. Verse 26 says, and when the centurion heard this, he went to the commander and reported it. And the centurion said, what are you going to do? This is a Roman citizen. 
So the commander went to Paul and said, Tell me, are you really a Roman citizen? Yes, I am, he answered. The commander said, I, I had to pay a lot of money for my citizenship. Paul pulled out the card again. Oh, he said, but I was born a citizen. Paul one-upped him. So then those who were about to interrogate Paul withdrew immediately. The commander himself was alarmed when he realized that he had put Paul, a, a Roman citizen, in chains. Was that good luck? No. Paul is in the hands of God, as are all of God's serpents. Serpents? <laughs> no, servants. God continually watches over and walks with his, uh, his people. And now in this place and, and, and everywhere, we can count on that every time that God is always watching over us. But still at that moment, Paul was not out of danger. The next day, he was taken to a, a Jewish court in Jerusalem. And that did not go well for Paul. There, the high priest Ananias was there, whom the historians have told us was known to be, quote, insolent, hot-tempered, profane, and greedy. He was present, but of no help to Paul. And the Pharisees and the Sadducees mostly argued with each other. It's been said that at that point in time, Paul was in more danger in the midst of the Jews than he was in a Roman prison. And so the Romans took Paul back to the fortress. But still, Paul was safe because God's always in charge. And as the well-known saying rightly reminds us, there's no safe place or to, build to be than the will of God. Paul had that assurance very shortly. Acts 23.11 tells us, The following night the Lord stood by him, Paul, and said, Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts about me in Jerusalem, so you must also in Rome. We don't know exactly what that meant and how uh, Paul might have described about that night when the Lord stood by him, but he certainly got the message. Paul had witnessed for Jesus in Jerusalem. Now God uh, told him that he would also have an opportunity to bear witness of, Je of Jesus in Rome. And for so long, that was exactly what Paul wanted to do. He didn't want to do it the way he thought was going to happen, but God made it so that Paul got exactly what he wanted to do, to go to Rome, tell the good news. But there were still obstacles to overcome. For instance, the, the next day, 40 Jewish religious fanatics <clears throat> made an oath to eat or drink until they killed Paul. Since the Roman army was stationed right there, that means that the fanatics were willing to die in order to kill Paul. But somehow a nephew of Paul who learned about the plot told of it to the Roman commander. And the commander decided to get Paul out of Jerusalem immediately. And just to make sure that nothing could go wrong, the commander sent with Paul 200 soldiers, 70 horsemen, and 200 spearmen. Quite a force to stand against just 40 men if a fight broke out. But the commander also sent along a document that declared Paul's innocence. The Roman soldiers had cleared him. That should have been enough to clear Paul of any crime before a court. So off they went under cover of night to Caesarea, a safer city than, than most others. And that didn't bother Paul because he was used to such night escapes. If you've gone through your Bible, you would know that he previously had done them in the city of Damascus, these escapes, and in the city of Thessalonica. So that was no problem for Paul. He was used to that. 
And the Lord was keeping his eye on Paul, and he still had a plan for Paul. And he has a plan for us also, every one of us. We just have to be worshiping God, and God will lead us in that. The Lord was keeping his eye on Paul. He still had a plan for Paul. He has a plan for every one of us. And we just need to stay in that plan. How do we do it? Know him. Listen to him. Follow him. I'll say that one more time. Know him. Listen to him. Follow him. You say, I don't know how I can, I can find out what's going on. Know him. Listen to him. Follow him. Where do we start? Always in God's word, the Bible. From Acts 23, 31 and 32, we know that uh, foot soldiers guarding Paul set off on a, fourth, uh, a forced march of approximately 40 miles through the night to Antipatris, and then they returned to Jerusalem. The horsemen, though, went along the way the rest of the way, 25 miles or so, to Caesarea. And at Caesarea was Felix, the governor of Judea. The soldiers gave Felix the letter regarding Paul, and then he handed Paul over to the governor's custody. And the governor read the letter and said to Paul, I will hear your case when your accusers are here. That meant Paul was going to stay there for a while. But then he ordered that Paul be kept under guard in Herod's palace, which King Herod had built for himself, but that had become the praetorium, the governor's official residence by that time. Luke doesn't explain what kept under, the guard, uh, kept under guard meant, but because Paul was a Roman citizen with no criminal charges to face, Paul was not treated so badly, at first at least. Acts 24.1 tells us that five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some elders and a lawyer named Tertullus, and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. Who knew there were lawyers even in ancient days, huh? Right? That they brought a lawyer with them shows again just how much they hated Paul and how they determined that they were, to jail, uh, they were determined to jail him and to kill him. They were pulling out all the stops to get at Paul. Acts 24 2 says, When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. Interestingly, though, the lawyer, Tertullus, didn't even begin to present anything about Paul, but rather he fawned all over the governor. Felix and flattered Felix for Felix's use of violence and repressive actions that enabled Felix to become powerful and corrupt. But then Tertullus finally got around to business. He accused Paul of three crimes. Number one, being a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. Being, number two, being a ringleader of the Nazarene sect. And number three, trying to desecrate the temple. None of that was true, but they pressed on. 24, chapter 24, 7 and 8 says, Tertullus also said to Felix, by examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. Luke tells us then that uh, other Jews joined in the accusations, asserting that these things were true. But then it was Paul's turn. And when the governor motioned him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you've been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to, worship, to Jerusalem to worship. By that, Paul was defending himself. He was saying 
uh, first of all, that he had not been in Jerusalem long enough to in actually instigate a riot. Number two, he, was, he mentioned that no one actually cited an instance of him instigating a riot. And number three, he declared he worshipped the God of Israel in conformity with the law and the prophets. Additionally, Paul expressed that his faith was not in a sect, but in Christianity, which was known as the way. The way. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, Paul said. And they cannot prove to you the charges they are, they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our ancestors as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. Paul then continued, I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets and I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have. That there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. Chapter 24, 17 says, After an absence of several years, Paul continued, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you and bring charges if they have anything against me. Verse 20 says, Or these who are here should state what crime they have found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. What do you think he shouted? Acts 20 says there, uh, verse 20 tells us that Paul said, uh, one thing I shouted, it is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on the trial before you today. That was it. So sweet and simple. Something everyone could understand. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm on a trial for you today. Well, it didn't get him out of trouble though, but at least he got to speak his mind on that. And it was true. Verse 22, then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. And when Ly Lysias, the commander, comes, he said, I will decide your case. He then ordered the centurion to keep Paul under a guard, but to put him or to give him some freedom and permit his friends to, tell him, uh, to come and take care of his needs. And that was nice, sort of, right? That was a, that was, actually, that was just a little tiny bit that he gave to Paul there. He then ordered Paul, that centurion, to put all under guard and give him freedom and permit to take care of his needs. That was nice. Injustices of that sort happen, don't they? He was innocent, yet rejected. But of course, God's always in charge. He needs always, we need always to remember that. We know that for those who love God, all those things work together for good, it says here in the scriptures. And in Paul's situation, something very unexpected happened. Several, several days later, Felix came to Paul's prison with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. Drusilla was a daughter of King Herod Agrippa I and a sister uh, of Herod Agrippa II. Her father killed the Apostle James. Her great uncle had slain John the Baptist. Her grandfather tried to kill the Lord Jesus. 
Her family's true stories were along the lines of the tawdry goings-on that are often reported in magazines about the rich, the famous, and the ruined people of our era. But because Drusilla was a Jewish, she would have known about the way, about Christianity, and about Jesus Christ, and about the church. And likely, Drusilla would have spoken of Jesus to Felix. Verse 24 tells us that Felix sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. It seems likely then that Paul didn't take that moment to discuss his imprisonment and his release, uh, possible release from prison, but rather he was witnessing to Felix to bring Felix to faith in Christ. Verse 25 says, and as he, Paul, reasoned about, the, about righteousness and self-control and, coming, uh, and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for a present. When I, uh, when I get an opportunity, I will summon you. At that same time, he, Felix, hoped that money would be given him from Paul. So he, went for, uh, so he sent for him often and confers, uh, conversed with him, which is to say that Felix really wanted to receive a bribe from Paul. That was the bottom line. When two years had elapsed, he was still in jail. When two years had elapsed, just for a minor infraction, when two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. And desiring to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison when he went to another job. How nice of that was, right, wasn't it? So then all the indications are that Felix rejected not only Paul, but Jesus and the gospel of Jesus Christ. What about this point in time for each of us? Have we accepted the truth about Jesus Christ, or have we rejected it? The gospel is often rejected, but it's never defeated. And so the question is, where are you today in this matter? Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? Is he reaching out to you? I can tell you yes, because he's always reaching out. Have you surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? He's reaching out to you. Do you sense that he is calling to you right now? Quite possibly in this room for some of you. What's your answer to that? He's reaching out to you. While just going through this short description of what was going on in Paul's life, I came along the Lectures on Acts by H.A. Ironside. H.A. Ironside was a great, great preacher, great, uh, godly person. Um, he, did, he wrote about the things that were going on in, in the scriptures. This one's called Lectures on Acts. Lectures on Acts. They're really not lectures. They're really just good stories and good uh, information. But looking at this recently, I came across about this in, in this Acts 24 section. It's called Felix uh, the Procrastinator. Felix the Procrastinator. Very interesting when we take a look at this. And 
I just want to read some of these things that that H.A. Uh, Ironside had as he was telling about what's going on with Felix and all of these, these folks. We read in, uh, as Ironside has his commentary, and we read, after certain days, when Felix came with his wife Drusilla, which was a Jewish, he sent for Paul and heard him concerning the faith in Christ. He was a most unprincipled man, H.A. Ironside said. He was a most unprincipled man, an ungodly, scheming politician who stooped often to the very lowest of methods in order to bring about his own purposes. The Spirit of God here mentions uh, Drusilla, evidently in order that we may realize something of a power over this man that kept him from making a definite decision for Jesus Christ. Drusilla knew better. Drusilla, the wife, was, um, she had been instructed in her earliest days in the, in the knowledge of the one true and living God. She knew something of the high standards set forth in the law of God. And she must have been conscious that she was flaunting them all in the life that she lived. And so here Felix was interested in Paul and his message. He evidently knew a great deal about what happened in Palestine, particularly in Judea, which he was, uh, of which he was a procurator. He knew about Jesus. He knew about his crucifixion. He knew that it was commonly reported that Jesus had risen in triumph from the dead. He knew how the gospel was spreading through all that part of the world and how it was reaching out to distant lands. Undoubtedly, deep in his heart, Felix wondered whether Jesus were not what he professed to be, the son of the living God. But to step right out and accept Christ, to yield his heart to Christ, was, uh, would mean facing the sin in which he was living. Drusilla, too, would have to face her sin. Ironside said, I don't know of any harder test for a man or woman today than just such a condition as this. It is hard for people when they know they have violated God's holy law and entered into a relationship contrary to God and are living in sin. Hard for them to judge their sin in the sight of God and get right. And so Felix, while interested, yet shrank from taking the step of full allegiance to the Lord Jesus Christ. We read also in Ironside's commentary, uh, we read that as Paul, quote, reason of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come. And that made Felix shudder, shudder, just because Paul brought that up. When Paul reasoned of righteousness, he must have brought before Felix the fact that, that he, Felix, had no righteousness. Paul went on to tell of judgment to come. It is appointed unto men once to die, and after that the judgment. There was no sugarcoating here. There was no palliating the message, no self, uh, soft uh, peddling, Ironside said. It took tremendous courage for this little Christian Jew, Paul, to stand there before that Roman governor and his paramour and press home upon their arts, uh, hearts and consciences the corruption of their lives and the wickedness of their arts. Then to insist that for all these things God was going to bring them into justice, judgment. And yet we do not read that Felix responded to it. 
He knew the truth of much of which Paul spoke, and he doubtless recognized the truth of the rest of it. And once again, he shuddered. The memory of his sins rose up before him. And as he stood there facing God about those sins, he was in trouble and distress, but there was no repentance. What folly it is to cover up and forget our, our sins. Remember, if unconfessed, God has never forgot them. He says, I will not forget uh, any of their sins. They are there in his books of record, and in his judgment day they will be manifested. Ironside goes on to say a little uh, later, ah, yes, and as Paul reasoned of righteousness, temperance, and judgment to come, he must have put clearly before Felix the glorious message of the gospel. But men need to remember this. The first time that a man comes into the presence of God, he must come with all his sins upon him. Do you understand that? That we must come with all our sins upon him. That is, we must own those sins, each one of us. Ironside goes on to say, if you've never come into the presence of God until the day of judgment, you'll stand there with all your sins upon you. And you will hear that voice saying, depart from me, ye cursed, into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. On the other hand, if you're ready to come into the presence of God, you must come with all your sins upon him. You cannot rid of them otherwise. You cannot cleanse your own heart. It's absolutely impossible for you to cleanse yourself to wash out the stains of sin. But thank God if you're ready to come to him in repentance, and repentance involves a complete change of attitude in regard to sin. If you're ready to come now, earnestly desiring the forgiveness of sins, there is forgiveness with him. Thank God. For if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So we read a little later that though Felix shuddered, he answered Paul saying, Go thy way for this time. When I have a, con a convenient season, I will call for thee. Paul, remember, had been making little visits to, um, to Paul in jail. Go thy way for this uh, for time. When I have a convenient season, I will call for thee, Felix said. That's the answer that so many make. Felix, the procrastinator. We have a saying that procrastination is the thief of time. And the Spaniards say the road of by and by leads to the house of never. And here is this man realizing his lost condition, knowing that he's not right in the sight of God, confessing that he ought to face these things honestly in his presence, knowing that he should put his trust in the Lord Jesus, yet he puts it off. Forget Felix for a moment and, and let me ask you to face this question honestly here. For us today, are, are you saying as Felix did, go thy way for this time when I have a convenient se uh, season, I will call for thee? You, fell, you fully expect to be saved sometime? Perhaps a dear father or mother has gone on to heaven and you promised before they left that you would meet them later on. Perhaps they're still living and again and again they've prayed for you and pleaded with you to come to Christ and you've said, oh yes, someday, sometime, but not now. When I have a more convenient season, then I will get right with God. When do you think that 
more convenient season will arrive. When will you ever have a better opportunity of closing with Christ than you have today? When will it ever be easier to repent of your sins, to confess your need, to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ than it is right now? Do you think it may be more convenient, a more convenient season when perhaps the health that you now enjoy is taken from you and you toss on a bed of sickness? In the last 50 years, Ironside said, in the last 50 years, I dare say that I've ministered to hundreds on sick beds, but I've never yet been at a sick bed of a Christian, but what the Christian was not glad that he had trusted Christ when he was still well and strong. I have I've had many say to me, I am so thankful that I do not have that matter to settle now when my body is racked with pain, when my poor mind is troubled and distressed. I'm so thank thankful that I knew Christ, my Savior, before I became ill. Often when I've stood, uh, stood by the sick bed of an unsaved one, I've been stirred to indignation when some doctor or nurse has said, oh, don't talk about religious, religion. Don't disturb him. He's too sick to be bothered by anything that might excite him. I know what they mean. They mean that we're not to tell dying men and women that it will be, all, that it will be Christ or hell, and that to reject the one is to choose the other. Do not be guilty of the inexcusable folly of saying, when I, have more, I, when I have a more convenient season, I will call for thee. When I am laid aside on a bed of sickness, then I will face the question of my soul's salvation. Ironside said, I wonder if someone is saying, when I can take life more seizurely, then I consider this question. Today I'm engrossed in study. I'm overwhelmed with the pressure of things at school. Or I'm out in the business world and occupied with all that I have to face day by day. Oh, give me a better opportunity. When I finish training or when I've reached the place where I can retire from activities of business and can look at things more thoughtfully, then I will call for you. Now is the time to get right with God in the midst of study in the midst of business, in the midst of all the various things you have to face. Take time to settle this greatest of all questions, that of your soul's salvation. People say, when I'm old, it will be time enough. After I've had my fling and after I enjoyed things of the world, and then as an old man or woman, I'll turn to Christ. Oh, the wretched hallucination that leads one to be so foolish as to speak like that. Skipped along through Ironside, but he closes in this. He just asks this, What about you, dear friend? Have you been refusing to yield to the Spirit of God? Have you been waiting for a more convenient season? Oh, will you not believe God when he says, Now is the accepted time of salvation? Many times the gospel is rejected. Never is it defeated. Which of the choices do you want? To be rejected or to be defeated? All that comes from Paul in the Bible. It also comes from the common sense of what I've just been talking about. We just need to get around to it. And you can do that right now. You could do it sitting in these chairs. You can do it coming up here, talking to someone. You can go in the prayer room if you want. But it's imperative that you do something. 
instead of keeping up possibilities, maybes, maybe when, maybe there, why not settle it, set it? Why not put it in concrete? Why don't you make it down? Because you're going you're gonna to be the best you could possibly be. You're going to be the most blessed you can possibly be. So why would you wait anymore? I'll leave it to you. It's your decision. God's been watching this the whole time. You could talk to him out loud or you can talk to him in your spirit, whatever it is. He's waiting. He's willing. Why not?